Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com, and we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to linode.com changelog. Hey, this is Michael Stapleberg, and it's go time. It's Go Time, a weekly podcast where we discuss interesting topics around the Go programming language, the community, and everything in between. If you currently write Go or aspire to, this is the show for you. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Go Time. Today's episode is number 59. Uh, on the show today, we have myself, Eric St. Martin. Uh, Brian Kettleson is also here. I'm so excited, I can't even hold myself. Right? It's just ridiculous. And Carlicia Pinto. Hi, everybody. So, and our special guest today, Brian uh, and I are um, particular fanboys of is uh, Michael Stapleberg, who, among other things, uh, is the creator of i3 Window Manager, which you've probably only heard us mention, you know, a handful of times. A thousand times. So, Michael, um, and I know you do a lot more stuff, too. Do you want to give kind of everybody just kind of a little bit of uh, background on you and, and kind of your history in software development and uh, in particular getting into Go? Sure, yeah. Uh, so the project that most people know me for is the i3 window manager by far. And I started that project in 2009. So we're going to have a nice 10-year anniversary pretty soon. Um, the, uh, the reason I started it back then was just that I was not very satisfied with uh, the window manager that uh, myself and a couple of my friends were using at the time, which was WMII, the uh, window manager improved, improved. And... Uh, as a little nugget for the listeners, that's also where the name i3 comes from, uh, if, you, if you don't know yet. Oh, nice. Uh, it is improved, 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 shortened <laughs> to i3. Um, so, so that's that. It, it is a tiling window manager uh, for power users uh, or advanced users or programmers or however you want to choose the audience. Uh, but the idea is that we don't target beginners, um, so we don't have to be intuitive, right? And that sounds a little bit strange at first, um, but it allows us to optimize sort of for uh, not mastering the learning curve easily, but once you um, have it learned, right, uh, you can use i3 very, very efficiently. And I think that is what many people appreciate about it. It's one of the things I hate about my Mac is that there is no i3. <laughs> so technically there is, it's just not very useful. Well, I use one, and I'm very happy with it. I use it all the time. I can't live without it, actually. It's a tiling window manager? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which one do you use? Moom? No. I'm actually looking for it. I never, I just... I want to say it starts with an A or something. Uh, there's one I've heard of that I've heard people use. I haven't tried it yet. I've I tried, tried like, all of them. Yeah, and none of them are I3. <laughs> Well, it's definitely not i3, and I have also have not used i3, but it is called uh, Divya. Oh, yeah, Divya. Divi. Yeah, Divi. Hmm. I haven't even heard of that one yet. I've been using it forever. I can, this, if I get a new machine, it's the first thing I put in. I, I do it without even thinking that I'm doing things. I just move things around. So an i3, of course, is written in C. Yes. But it's, it's amazing. It, it really is. 
Thank so you very much. Is your history mostly in C and C++ and, and things like that? Sort of. So um, I looked into C, of course, um, as the, the most natural systems programming language when you're using Linux or any other Unix operating system, right? Uh, I have done a little bit of C++, but I don't like it as much, um, largely because it seems like too large of a language. And I, I feel like I can't really master it as much as I can with uh, C and even more so Go nowadays, right? I have done a fair bit of Perl. In fact, the i3 test suite is entirely implemented in Perl, uh, which seemed like a good choice at the time and is still an okay choice today, I would say. Uh, sometimes contributors are a little bit put off that now they also have to deal with Perl code, right? <laughs> but uh, I'd like to say that our Perl style is relatively modern. In fact, there's a book called Modern Perl, which we have in our header of uh, each and every test case. And essentially, it's like a little domain-specific language that you need to deal with. Um, it's, it's not like you need to be a Perl master, and we are happy to help. Um, but given that we now have such a comprehensive test suite, uh, it is very, very hard to change it, right? Regardless of which language we would want to target, it's just like once you have like 3,000 test cases, you can't mm -hmm. really move easily in any direction. Yeah, you'd basically have to halt new development while you ported your test suite. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's not valuable at all. And I can't see anybody really wanting to, to volunteer <laughs> for that. Yeah, I've done a couple of uh, test suite related refactorings in the last couple of weeks. Uh, and they are enough. Uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's enough work as is without even changing any bit of the language. So you've done uh, quite a bit in, in C and things like that. But so I'm trying to remember when this article came out, but it was probably a couple months ago. You did a um, blog post on why Go is now your, your new favorite language and kind of having a background and building something as complex as like I3 and C. Uh, I'd love to kind of hear your opinion on that and kind of why, why you love Go now. And if you had it to do over again, if you were starting fresh today, would you build something like I3 and Go? <laughs> right, sure. Um, I'll try to remember all parts of the question because I fear that the answer will be a little bit long-winded. I mean, after all, I've written a blog post about the subject, right? Um, so I initially looked into Go in 2009, coincidentally the same year that i3 was started, right? Um, but uh, in 2009, it was the initial release that Google did. Um, and it wasn't uh, Go version 1 yet, right? So there was no uh, compatibility guarantee. Uh, so I looked into it and I played around with it a little bit, did like the, the playground exercises. I wrote like this little IRC bot, which actually still lives and still works largely untouched, right? Which is a miracle. <laughs> it must be one of the oldest throwaway projects that just still work. So I, I really appreciate that. And that actually gave me a lot of confidence in the language and the ecosystem uh, over the years. But then I sort of put it away for the next three years until in 2012, the uh, Go One came out, right? Uh, and that was sort of when I seriously started to look into it. And at that point, I had, mind you, four years of experience uh, writing a moderately complicated project in C, right? Uh, it's not that I hadn't done any sort of C development before that, but uh, once you have a code base that is in the tens of thousands of lines of code, uh, your perspective changes a little bit, right? You get sort of a feel for uh, which mistakes are common and, and what sort of thing you would want to look at. Um, and I think if you, if you go out uh, and read the blog post, what you'll realize is that not in a single word do I ever mention any language feature, right? I, I, don't, 
I don't say, oh, in Go, you have channels and they're the greatest thing ever, right? I, I don't even care about that at all, right? Because that's just such a superficial thing for me. Uh, what, where it's really at is the integration and the tooling and the consistency and the language ecosystem and also the community, right? And, and that is all where Go really shines, right? The language is simple. The ideas are, some of them are not quite standard, I have to say. Um, but if you look in history, you will see that none of them is really like super new or super exciting on its own. I think it is the, when you put it all together, that's where you really get like an appealing language on its own, but then the tooling comes on top of it and the tooling is just so, so good. And that's what I really appreciate in my day to day um, because language features and, and issues, you can just sort of work around, right? You just need to Google it and then you'll find a post by someone on Stack Overflow saying, oh yeah, this is how you would usually do it in Go. Um, that's more idiomatic, right, is what we say. Uh, and then you adopt that and then you're done, right? But the tooling, you use it every day. That's, a, I, I guess, a point I didn't even catch in the article. Like, you read the article, but you, it doesn't really shine through that, like, that's the only thing. Like, you, you don't actually mention a single language feature. Right. And, and I only realized this after I had actually completed the article, right? It, it's not like I set out to write an article that, is, that only goes on about how great the tooling is, right? Um, it actually mentions more than just the tooling, right? So my point is not just the tooling is great. That's certainly one of the important points. Um, but the other points are, are roughly that it is very easy to get into Go code um, just by reading it, right? Because the, the opinions that are prevalent in the Go community uh, and in the style that people choose, at least largely for the standard library, which I would like to think of as a fairly consistent piece of work, um, but also in many other projects that I have read the source of, um, all, all of these opinions make it very easy to follow the code, I think. It is exactly the right level of comments, exactly the right level of identifier length, uh, exactly the right level of abstraction, right? So I, d I don't need to read uh, through a lot of the code base in order to jump in and understand a little bit that I'm currently interested in. Yeah, I think Go is the most readable language I've ever used. And I've touched most of them, but I always love the readability of Go. It's very clear that, that they spent a lot of time thinking about how to read code versus how to write code. Yeah, absolutely. And one point that sort of ties into both of these themes is uh, GoFund, of course, right, which auto formats your code. And just uh, a couple of days ago, I actually had a discussion with a friend of mine uh, where uh, we were now getting together because we have this retro gaming event coming up next month uh, in, in Heidelberg, a German town. Uh, and for that event, we are using an old Commodore 128 computer, which is a computer that is older than I am, right? And we programmed this little cash register program for it in C. Uh, and I recently, I, I, I got back into the code and essentially this is a code base that has lived on for like seven years, I think. Uh, but we only ever touch it once a year, right? Shortly before the event starts, we're like, oh, so what, what, was, what bothered us last year? And then we're going to fix that. Um, but what I, what I realized was that um, it, the code was not auto-formatted, right? So it wasn't consistent. And then I was just like, okay, I'm just going to Clang format this. And then I submitted a Travis hook so that it would always be Clang formatted. And then inevitably, I got into that discussion uh, with the friend of mine who was like, yeah, see, so I think this is sort of a good idea. But in this particular one file, I don't like what the formatter does. And I'm like, oh, this again, right? Because I sort of once you start using go you kind of just 
put away this entire discussion, right? Nobody would ever come and argue, well, I, I just don't like what GoFump does in this one file, so I turn it off, right? It's just not <laughs> something you hear. And I really appreciate that, like that the entire body of open source Go code uh, and probably also most of the corporate Go code that there is, is in fact auto-formatted. That is such an interesting comment, because if you think about it, nobody ever turns it off. There are no rebel, rebels that uh, would do that. It just, I think it speaks to how much it makes sense to have it. If they did, they'd get caught in code review. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think the only time I've ever seen it, uh, I've ever seen code not auto-formatted in the recent times is whenever people are working on a single project, like individually without code review, and they just forget, right? Because they, ha they haven't had their editor setup fixed yet. Um, so, you know, the, the, the vast majority of their code is auto-formatted, but this little one file that they've touched recently, they just forgot. Uh, yeah, that's true. Or like they are moving machines and they don't, their editor isn't set up on the new machine to do it or something like that. Exactly. Yeah, but you still could have people not do it for whatever reason and code review. People could review and you not care enough, but it makes so much sense that even when we're reviewing code, we care that, hey, this should be formatted. It must be formatted the correct way, the standard way. I think it's interesting, though, because coming into it, right, like people have preferences. Like they, they are like zealots about it, you know, number of tabs or spaces and, and things like that. And when you first come in or, you know, whether the curly brace goes on what line and, and things like that, and people are like so stuck in that and they're concerned that, you know, with GoFumped, that it's going to irritate them. But it's funny how quick those thoughts wash away and you're just happy for the consistency. Yeah, absolutely. I've never been that way. Has anybody here like really been like hardcore tabs for spaces or... or? I have to think of the Silicon Valley episode recently where that was an <laughs> entire thing, right? Oh, yeah where, yeah, where he broke up with his girlfriend. Yeah. Because... Yeah. <laughs> The, the perfect girl <laughs> wasn't just a girlfriend. She was perfect. I've been in two or three day long meetings before. Uh, this was C sharp back in the, the what, maybe 2000s, early 2000s, where we spent two or three days talking about what our code formatting style was. And I find that to be the largest waste of time ever. Oh, yeah. I, that's true. Like I've worked for several companies that had style guides for every language that was used. Yeah. And you would get caught in code review for style guides. And that's, yep. I think that's why we've adopted GoFumped as, as um, canon because everybody's been there. You know, we've all seen this ridiculous waste of time on formatting and I don't even care if it matches my preference. It makes no difference anymore. I got used to it in a week. And now GoFumped is my preference. <laughs> and just, there's no arguing about it. There's no wasted time. It's, you know, it's, it's so amazing. Can we make GoFumped work on other languages? <laughs> well, it's funny that uh, newer languages are starting to adopt this. So Rust has a format program. Pony has a format program. Um, I, I really appreciate the fact that others have, have seen this and, and they're taking it to heart. As long as you, you don't have the option to customize it. It's either on or off, but if it's on, it's one thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that is actually the critical insight that GoFum brought to the table, right? Because the idea itself is certainly not new, right? There used to be the indent tool 
which we tried to adopt for the i3 code base back at, in the days, and it didn't quite work. But we also made this, this wrong assumption that we wanted to configure the tools such that it would largely match our code base. And now, of course, we all know that it goes the other way around, right? You just reformat it once and then you're done with it, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't realize that at the time. And then, of course, you try to figure out exactly the correct indent parameters. And then Clang format came to the table, but it also supports multiple styles. So which one do you choose? And it even allows you to sort of derive from a common style, but then define exceptions to that, which is even more horrible, I think. Yeah, you're basically just automating your opinions. Yeah. But you still go through the... The, the process of like which opinion is going to prevail. Exactly. And that, that defeats the whole purpose. Add that to the list of things you shouldn't have to worry about before getting stuff done. But you still want same looking code everywhere. So. so I do find it amazing that we've been having a podcast and we've been talking 20 minutes with probably my biggest hero in the programming universe. And we've talked about formatting code <laughs> and that's that's the only real topic we've hit um that's you know honestly that's that says something big about go and the tooling and the ecosystem i i truly love that yeah i'm, I'm so flattered so why don't you ask something that you really want to know okay why can't i3 run everywhere <laughs> what what's what's keeping us from replacing aqua in mac os with something that runs i3 and why can't i run i3 on windows um, the simple answers, the simple answers in order are Apple, Microsoft, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. Um, I, I actually had like this phase where I used a Mac, um, and I looked into Aqua, but it's just, you can't look into it, right? It doesn't have an API. It doesn't have the concept of a window manager. In no. fact, uh, on, on Unix, the fact that we have the X11 server is the only reason why window managers exist and why there can be different ones, right? Everything else, every other operating system that I've seen, to the extent that I've looked into the APIs and the customization possibilities, it's just there is a default window manager. And if you're lucky, you get to interact with it. And that's how you can build tools, such as the one that Calicia mentioned earlier, right? Where, um, you know, at best you have a couple of key bindings and then it moves windows around and maybe resizes them. But the level of customization that you can achieve if you implement the entire window manager, it's just nowhere near that, right? So this might be interesting. It's not, it's not Go related, but for people who may not be familiar, like the difference, like what's the difference between a desktop and a window manager and like a terminal or console? Well, that's a good question. Why in the Linux terms? So what people would usually use these days is a desktop environment, right? Uh, where you have a couple of features such as obviously the desktop metaphor, which gives it the name, right? You have a couple of files and folders represented by icons on the arrangement, which is a desktop where you have multiple windows and then you can sort of have them interact with, with each other um, or you interact with the windows even more so. But uh, I think the, the crucial distinction between the desktop environment and the window manager is uh, in the integration, right? Because the desktop environment has a much broader scope. Uh, it should be possible for you to easily connect like a printer and have it configured via the desktop environment of your choice, whether that be GNOME or KDE or what have you, right? On, on other platforms, they're different, of course. But a window manager is just that one little subset of a desktop environment, just the thing that is concerned with managing the windows, right? So typically features uh, that are relevant here are keyboard shortcuts that directly do something with the window. Uh, the one that I canonically list is 
uh, either Alt F4, which of course everybody knows from Windows to close a window, um, or Alt Tab to switch between the windows, right? Um, and that is something that your window manager would implement or at least play a large role in. And I think the term window manager means more than just that nowadays on Linux, right? Because you have uh, these communities that sort of, they gathered around the minimalistic window managers and they built various parts of the desktop environment around them. So when you say you're using a window manager, what that really means is you're not just using a window manager, but you sort of chose and pick a couple of tools from, from GNOME or KDE or even standalone tools. There are sometimes replacements for the various features that uh, a desktop environment comes with. For example, for monitor configuration, uh, in i3, you would either directly use the command line tool xrender to access that API or the more convenient standalone a render tool. Um, but you wouldn't, i3 wouldn't be concerned at all with uh, your monitor configuration. It just adapts to whatever it is that you configure. So the separation of concerns is very clear, at least to somebody like me who knows how it is implemented, right? Sometimes people come and they don't really get it yet, like what, what goes where. Um, because on other operating systems, all of this is very integrated. And you can't, as I mentioned, you can't even make the distinction between do I want to use a desktop environment or can I just throw all of that away and say, I'm going to start from scratch and I'm going to build my environment, my custom environment. Hey, I wonder with um, Windows subsystem for Linux, I think that's only terminal in, huh? Yeah, we there's wouldn't only, be able to get X. There's only terminal, but you can run an X server on Windows side and then i3 from WSL and view it in Windows, which is, that was my blog post. That's, that's what I do. I may have to play with that. It's, it's really awesome. I'm not going to lie. You get the best of, best of many worlds. So what types of things are you working on um, these days, Michael? Are you, are you mostly working in Go or are you kind of jumping between languages? I try to do most of my work in Go, um, both as a matter of, of preference and also just practicality. Because when you switch between languages, of course, you need a little bit of time to adjust between the differences, be it in the tooling or be it just in the language, right? Uh, so, of course, there are existing projects that I still care about. So for any sort of work on i3, of course, I can't just say, oh, we're going to throw away everything and I would like it to be in Go now, right? That just doesn't fly. So out of necessity, sometimes I need to use C. Uh, I try to make it as as much uh, as similar to Go as possible, right? In the sense that I do auto-format it. I have a good test suite, which is easily executable, stuff like that. Um, but certainly the my my big preference for anything else but existing legacy projects where we can't just make the switch is to do it entirely in Go or as much as possible in Go, yeah. Nice. One of the things that you've been um, working on lately that just I think is, is amazing is the Go Crazy user space for Raspberry Pi. Will you tell us uh, what were your motivations behind that? Right, right, sure. Uh, yeah, that's actually a fun little project um, that we started at the beginning of this year, actually. Um, so the idea is that I was getting fed up with maintaining all of these little Raspberry Pis, right? Uh, many of us probably have a little Raspberry Pi at home doing one thing or another in their home network or a device that is comparable, right? A little, I don't know, Intel NUC computer or an Atom-based like little embedded device, anything like that, right? But the Raspberry Pi certainly is the most prevalent of these devices. So I figured it would make sense to just target the Raspberry Pi for now. And the, the observation was that if I write most of my programs in Go nowadays, 
why do I even need to maintain this entire Linux ecosystem on each and every one of my Raspberry Pis? At the point when I started the project, I had three of them running. And I looked at them and I, I logged in. And because of the custom image that I, I used on them, uh, I saw that the, the last build timestamp for that image was in 2013. So at the point when I logged in, I saw that it had an uptime of four years without me changing the base system. And it had, of course, uh, security vulnerabilities accumulated over these four years, right? And that is a horrible state to be in. And I, I really don't want to have that on my home network. I want to have all of my devices uh, up to date, ideally with an auto update. It goes so far that I have... Uh, gifted devices to friends of mine and bought a new device where the only difference in operation was that the device auto-updated. Uh, an example of that is the Tourist Omnia OpenWRT router, which I would recommend uh, because it is, to the best of my knowledge, the only OpenWRT-based Linux router that auto-updates, right? Uh, and that that is just... Uh, that just comes from working full-time, right? When I was a student, I could, of course, still spend quite a lot of time uh, administering all of these servers, right? I was running Debian testing on many of my machines and virtual machines and all of the little devices, and I would update them sort of regularly. But at some point, your priorities just change and you just can't do that anymore. So I figured I would go at it from the other direction and be very strict about it. So I want to have devices that auto-update, and I want to have devices that don't expose a lot of attack surface, um, both on the network itself and on the internet, of course. And I figured one way to do that would be to look into whether we could actually run a Linux kernel and ideally directly execute Go programs without any of the regular uh, Linux distribution in the middle. And Go Crazy is an implementation of this. So what Go Crazy does is you give it a Go package that you have uh, be it like a little Hello World program or existing bigger programs like the Prometheus node exporter if you want to monitor your Raspberry Pi in Prometheus. Uh, and you, you give a Go package to the Go Crazy Packer program. And what it does is it packs an SD card image uh, with the Linux kernel and the Raspberry Pi firmware and a minimal init system that comes with the Go Crazy project and then just the Go packages that you provided. And these four parts are all that you really have in the image. And then you just copy that image onto an SD card and you boot your Raspberry Pi from it. And there's no other moving parts. There's no Linux distribution. It's not based on Debian or based on Fedora or anything like that. Uh, it has just directly the kernel and the firmware. And another important part of this project is that all of these parts are auto-updated. So for the uh, kernel and for the firmware, we have a cron job running on Travis which every day goes and checks the upstream repositories for newer versions of what we have packaged. And if there is, for example, a new kernel release, and I learned that the kernel actually gets quite a few releases, I never paid attention to it, but they do like a little point release. But anyway, so it, it, we have this little cron job which looks at what is the latest kernel version. And if the latest kernel version doesn't match what we have in our repositories, it goes on and downloads it and then builds it on Travis. And then we have uh, three th separate pieces of automation, which I'm not going to cover in detail. You can just look at an existing presentation about Go Crazy if you're interested, uh, which sort of do this entire dance of um, how about, you know, I take a pull request, I build a kernel, I amend the kernel into the pull request, I automatically test that new resulting image on an actual Raspberry Pi, and if it boots, I'm just going to merge it. So frequently when I wake up in my inbox, I'm going to have like this little GitHub uh, email thread where it tells me there's a new version of the Linux kernel. Oh, and by the way, I tested it and it boots. And oh, also I merged it. And oh, I also deployed it onto all of your Raspberry Pis, right? <laughs> uh, 
Um, so that's the ideal state for me, right? I wake up and I, I realize that there was a new Linux kernel release because I'm already running it, right? And then later on, I read about it in the news and read the changelog. Well, that's awesome. That's automation right there. Do you have kind of like the split firmware where in case it doesn't start up um, with the new kernel? Because occasionally there's weird issues and the kernel won't boot. Yeah, uh, that's true. Uh, one of these issues that we faced a while ago, and in fact, the only one that we ever faced so far, and the project has been running, as I mentioned, since uh, the beginning of the year, is that um, there's this little bit that needs to be set correctly so that the kernel driver for the uh, Ethernet card on the Raspberry Pi will pick up the correct MAC address. And uh, when it regresses, i.e. when it doesn't pick up the correct MAC address, it will fall back to just auto-generating a MAC address. So that makes for a very weird problem to debug because everything seems to be working fine, but then occasionally you wouldn't be able to connect to your Raspberry Pi because it would get like a new IP address and maybe your DNS name isn't quite updated yet to the new one, it's still cached or something like that, right? So these are weird to debug problems, but um, aside from that, we haven't had any sort of issue. But to answer the original question, no, there's no like dual BIOS functionality or anything like that because unfortunately the Raspberry Pi hardware just doesn't provide any mechanism to implement that, right? Either it boots or it doesn't boot. Uh, and you can't really do much else than that. Yeah, unless you like rolled your own, writing a little assembly from the beginning before Linux kicks in, but true, yeah, to do that? Yeah, I mean, if, if you're gonna enable the hardware watchdog on the Raspberry Pi uh, early enough, then maybe you could recover from a failed kernel boot. In fact, we also looked into whether we would want to have any sort of automation around that, like, you know, what you can do on a, on modern Raspberry Pi is actually you can boot it via the network. So we could actually give it uh, a new image and look whether it boots. And if it doesn't boot, maybe trigger some sort of remote controllable power strip to reboot it. Um, but then we thought, well, does that automation really pay off, right? Because in the, in, the, in the common case, what will happen is it will just boot and then the device stays functional. And in the case where it doesn't boot, you need to have manual intervention anyway. So we figured, okay, maybe the failure mode is just the test Raspberry Pi that is running at my home with the sole purpose of testing these images just doesn't boot anymore. And then I need to look at it and fix it up. And then uh, I go on and push, right? So as an end user of GoCrazy, you wouldn't face a not booting kernel because the kernel needs to have booted on my Raspberry Pi. So I have sort of this sacrificial Raspberry Pi <laughs> running at my home. And I mean, I guess that's true too, right? Like we're talking about different worlds. Like this isn't like some military grade thing that's going to be running in in a space shuttle. It's a Raspberry Pi in your home. Like if you have to pull out the SD card and manually copy over the files from the old version, it's it's not the end of the world. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I think uh, I'm just personally annoyed enough by it when it doesn't boot that this will not be a problem for anyone else. <laughs> Well, it's an amazing project. I love the idea of of getting rid of all of that uh, extra user space and just booting the app you need. Most of the time, that's you know we single purpose our our Raspberry Pis, and and this has me thinking now. Uh, Eric and I use Raspberry Pis for our barbecue grills, and this uh, go crazy would be absolutely perfect for that use case. It just it would be a hundred percent perfect, and we could always keep it running and up to date and. I just have to upgrade to a Pi 3 instead of the Pi 2 I have now, which, which isn't the end of the world. More, more reasons to upgrade. Right. I'm torn, though, 
I still want to do some arm stuff. Well, what do you what do you mean? You you still can do arm stuff on it, right? Well, so like actual like uh, embedded devices. So I've uh-huh, got like right. a you know a Cortex M4 or something like that um, that I've been running against an LCD screen. So I'm back and forth with whether to do a full-blown Linux install or not. But I mean, these things run so low power now that it's, I'm torn because you can get development done a lot faster just using Go. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think uh, it totally makes sense if you just want to play around and have some fun with the embedded device to go that route. But as soon as you just want to have an idea become reality in any reasonable time frame uh, and and have it stay working right um it makes much more sense to go the higher level route yeah and i mean i I guess that's right too like uh time to market right like if you're trying to um build some sort of commercial product then it makes sense to keep your your bill of materials down and your costs down and all of these things but for most of us we're building little trinkets for our house Absolutely. And I think if you can get it done in like a weekend, then that's going to be much more motivating than if you will have to like, you know, order things and solder them together and then come up with a firmware and, oh gosh, maybe even write it in C, right? Which I've done. <laughs> me too, me too. <laughs> and, I, and I will admit, I am not the best C programmer nor embedded systems person. So. Better than Weird me. Weird things happen. And and if you want proof, uh, so we, so Brian was cooking like a a whole pig one weekend, and we we literally just threw together something like this, like you said, kind of in the weekend or whatnot. And you can see proof of this um, through the way I I did the serial connection between the Wi-Fi chip and the actual microcontroller. Something is not right there because you would see like peaks where it would say it's like one million degrees, and then negative two million degrees. <laughs> Hmm. Oops. Yeah. Yep. Not quite right. Like this would have been so much nicer if I could just use a good library for this, and I wasn't trying to cobble it together really quickly in a night. So going back to i three for a moment, I, I hate to do this, but uh, after the show, Michael, I need you to send me your mailing address because I need to send you a bill for <laughs> antidepressants. It, it just occurred to me that you know the whole reason I can't stand computers anymore is because of i3. I only want to develop when I'm running i3. And if I'm stuck on a Mac or Windows or something else, it makes me unhappy and therefore I have to take drugs. So, <laughs> I would like to send you a bill for that. It probably will be 4 or 5,000 dollars for the last few years. I hope you're okay with that. I think I think you should but, invert that. But I, I hold think, you personally responsible. I think that you should have to pay him for not having to take them during the periods of time that you used i3. <laughs> there you go. Well, so that brings up a good point. Uh, I contribute monthly to several Patreon accounts for open source projects that I, that I truly love. Does i3 have a Patreon? Uh, no, we, we do not currently have one. Um, you know, with a project where there's largely a single maintainer, but then so many contributors, it often becomes an issue of fairness. Like, how do we distribute the funds, right? And if people approach me and say they really want to donate, I usually accept their donations, which are in, you know, the, the low, like $10 or something. Um, and the, the funds that we accept, they go directly into hosting costs and uh, merchandise costs, like stickers, for example. I think I handed you one at GopherCon. 
Um, so that was paid by contributors um, and, and things like that, right? Uh, we're certainly not trying to, to cover any sort of development costs um, or make a living off of I3. Uh, it is a spare time project and it will remain a spare time project. It's a labor of love. So speaking of the I3 sticker, you'll get a, a kick out of this. My, my mother came and visited two weeks ago. And as she, like the day before she left, she looked in my office and she said, are you using all of those laptops? Are there any spares that you can send home because my laptop is dead? And I said, sure, absolutely. So I gave her a laptop and it happened to be one with an I3 sticker on it. And she said, what is I3? So I, I had to show her and she was lost, completely lost. So <laughs> I3 is not for everyone. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So you talk about all these um, kind of projects that you're doing on the side. What are you, what are you working on kind of for day job? What, what does pay the bills? Right. So currently, um, I'm lucky to be employed by Google uh, in the European headquarters. And in fact, I am working on Go in a capacity, not as part of the Go team itself, but we're working in uh, the so-called Frameworks Go team. Uh, and that's a, a team where uh, we want to make it easier for other teams to develop software uh, that runs well in production, right? So we're doing sort of a microservices framework, uh, if you will. Uh, it is, certainly there are comparable projects out there in, in the open source world, um, but I wouldn't really know because I only have like the inside look at it. So I, I don't run stuff with a lot of open source software. I'm mostly concerned about how our internal production uh, network looks like. Um, so we're, we're trying to make it easy for them uh, to run good Go code. And of course, Google has many years of experience in C++ and Java for running all sorts of applications. But uh, in Go, that's not quite there yet. Um, so that's what I'm working on. Oh, that's awesome. So, that's, so you mostly work with the internal teams. Yeah, absolutely. There are, um, very occasionally, there are places where uh, I can not only contribute to something internal, but also something external, and then I happily do that. Um, but the large part of it is focused on the internal stuff, yeah. I read a really interesting article this morning uh, talking about Google's internal infrastructure, software infrastructure, versus open source. And the article suggested that uh, the, the software, the frameworks that Google uses internally are five to eight years ahead of, of open source equivalents. And uh, if you want to have a sense of what open source will look like in, in five years, just go look at Google's internal tools. Do you feel like that's roughly accurate? I wouldn't be able to say exactly how many years it is, but yes, I definitely got the feeling when I joined that this is years ahead of everything that I've known up to that point. And in fact, I would love it if open source would look more like what we have internally in a couple of years, just because it makes my life so much simpler, because there's this huge divide uh, between things that you experience at work and things that you experience in the outside, right? Uh, as, as just one example, uh, what a different project of mine that I run is Debian Code Search, uh, which is a, a regular expression code search engine for all of the open source software that is found in Debian. And uh, when I launched it, we had quite some trouble getting the resources for it because you need uh, devices, storage devices that have a huge number of IOPS, right? You definitely need flash devices, maybe even RAM if you can afford it, which we can't right now. Um, but you can't run it off of a regular spinning hard disk. And uh, in 2012, when I started that project, uh, I approached the Debian sysadmin team and asked them for flash storage, and they flat out laughed at me, right? And I was like, what, what, what's happening? I just couldn't understand 
um, because that was also the year when I joined Google. And I, when I needed flash storage, I would just ask for it and, and allocate it in a self-service way. And a couple of days, uh, a couple of, of minutes later, I would have the flash storage available to me, right? And and I just couldn't fathom how there could be this huge divide between, oh yeah, sure, you, you can do that. You don't even need to talk to a human to do that internally. And then externally, it just would not be possible. Isn't Google going to open source a lot of the infrastructure or some of the infrastructure? I think that's definitely the trend. So infrastructure is always hard to really open source, right? As in infrastructure, software, and systems. But uh, if, you, if you read about it, there was the release of AppSile recently, which is sort of Google's base libraries for C++ and also for Python, and was released at CppCon. Um, just a, a couple of days ago. And uh, I'm very excited about this release because it means that other parts of Google can also be released uh, because essentially every project that we have uses the base libraries, right? That's why they're called base libraries. And if the base libraries are not released, you need to jump through so many hoops whenever you want to do an open source release. And now that that foundation is laid, I'm confident that more projects can be released soonish, I hope. The reason I even know this is because JBZ is leaving the Go language team to work on the project to open source some part of the infrastructure. And I was wondering if you would know more specifically what that is. Mm -hmm, right. No, I, unfortunately, I didn't even know that, that she was moving. So I don't know. Sorry. Yeah, more like uh, what the plans are for open sourcing. What, what parts of the infrastructure is what I'm curious. Right, and I think that is a decision that the individual teams actually need to make for themselves. I think in general, the climate is pro-open source and people are encouraged to think about it and consider open sourcing it. But ultimately, uh, there's no sort of top-down mandate to open source everything, right? You, that, that wouldn't fly. That's not how Google works. Um, so I think if the team in question has the manpower to do it and has the will to do it, they will now be much more empowered than they used to be. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah. And even just um, like things like Kubernetes, right? Like that's not a direct open source release of an infrastructure tool of Google, but it's the recreation of one that's not so tied to, you know, Google's infrastructure, which is really awesome that we get to to share in these things that Google's been doing for ages. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, Kubernetes was one of the things that I was so happy about when it was released because I was like, oh, finally, uh, there will be products like this, right, which, which offer Kubernetes as a service. That, that's really what I think will be very useful because, so for example, for, uh, for i3, we used to host everything ourselves, right? We used to have like these little uh, bots and, and helper tools, and even we had a custom code review tool, right? And we've since moved everything to the cloud and it just makes our life so much easier. And we run parts of it on App Engine. For example, the, uh, the bot that services GitHub issues runs on App Engine. And it would be entirely conceivable that we could run more of these services on like a you know, public or semi-public Kubernetes, hosted Kubernetes, like the Google Container Engine, right? Um, I'm excited for more, um, also more service providers to step into that market, right? And I think uh, Microsoft, in fact, has an offering uh, on, on Azure. You probably can just get a couple of containers in Kubernetes. Um, and I, I hope that this becomes much more of a commodity, right? I don't want to manage all of these machines, much like in the Go Crazy project, right? The insight is that I don't have the time for this and I don't, I don't want to do this. I just want to run my application code, right? If I have a Go package, why is it so hard to run it on somebody's cloud, right? Yeah, just take my stuff and put it somewhere, please. <laughs> exactly. So the Expander project, 
obviously super cool and for people who don't know it, it, it's like a an automated way to add the if error statements so the tool automatically recognizes if your function returns an error or the function you're calling returns an error and then you can automatically trigger the if error statements and I see that's available for Emacs, which I imagine is what you use. Mm -hmm. But uh, do you know of any of the other editors having plans to add it? Because I want it. <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, so <laughs> to answer the direct question, and then maybe I can talk about how the project came to be. Uh, there are There is, in fact, a pull request by someone who uh, is um, currently adding it to the Vimgo plugin. Uh, so that's still just, you know, it all needs to be merged. Um, I think Fatih is very busy with other projects currently, but as soon as he gets a chance, uh, I hope we can make some progress on this. Uh, it, it definitely will be integrated into Vim. Um, I think uh, we briefly brought up adding it to Visual Studio Code as well, and they were very receptive of the idea. Um, so I hope it, it will be added to more uh, more editors as people make that little bit of effort and just integrate it. That'll be awesome. That's awesome. Thank you for that tool. I mean, all the tools you do. <laughs> and that seems to be like one of the, the common complaints too from people coming in to go to is kind of they feel it's super verbose to have to constantly do that. So I think that that's going to be an easy solve for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. like I hate typing the, the error checks that you don't have to. Exactly. And that, that was actually exactly the feeling that I had. Like I was writing a, a, a Go program and I don't really mind typing these error checks whenever you're modifying an existing program because they tend to not be so pervasive. But when you're prototyping something, especially something that interacts with your operating system, say, you know, you iterate over a directory, you open a couple of files, you do some transformation, like typical stuff that you want to do and get out of the way quickly when you're prototyping. Uh, some people would argue that you just don't need to do the error checking, but I would yeah. vehemently argue against it, right? <laughs> Especially when prototyping, it is crucial that you get good errors. And so I found myself typing all of these error checks over and over again. And I know that, for example, in the uh, blog post by Russ Cox, um, at the beginning of the year, he said that he would want to look into uh, improving the error checking situation. So I figured, well, you know, it's good that they're working on it. But in the meantime, I would like to just have a, a little bit more automation in my editor. And I figured, hey, I'm using Emacs and it has all of these packages and there's so many advanced features. So I asked on Twitter, so why isn't it a thing that when you want to expand an error check uh, statement, uh, why, doesn't it, why isn't it type aware and why can't it return exactly the right thing and why can't it expand in the right way? And then I hoped that somebody would reply and say, oh yeah, you just need to install this package, but nobody <laughs> stepped up. So at some point, uh, in fact, shortly before GopherCon, um, I was I was considering doing this and then sort of uh, almost as a joke, I started and figured, well, could you do this, right? Could you write a little tool that when you invoke it, it just expands whatever is under the cursor? And turns out it is possible, right? So then uh, we had a Go meetup in Zurich uh, and I wasn't still quite sure about the idea, right? Because error checking is is such a hot topic in Go um, and I wasn't quite sure whether other people would like it. So when we had the, the Go meetup in Zurich, there were a couple of presentations. And then after the regularly scheduled presentations, they asked, well, is there anybody who wants to do a lightning talk? Uh, and in fact, uh, Marcel from the Go team gave a little lightning talk about an investigation into uh, an Eros package that he had designed. 
And I thought, well, now it's, it's very to the point, right? And I was like, okay, so why don't I show my little tool here? And I demonstrated it. And uh, people were sort of like amused, but also interested. And most of all, Robert Griesemer from the Go team was in the room and he didn't flat out laugh at me. So I figured, okay, I can release this now. <laughs> Must be all right. Yeah, it's fantastic. I love how smart it is. I'm watching the little video on the, the page over and over and it's, it's uh, aware enough to return the right things when you change your function signature. That's brilliant. I love it. Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. Now, what could Russ possibly mean when he said they will be looking into the error handling. Well, that, that's just speculation, right? But it is entirely yeah, thinkable. That, exactly, let's speculate. Yeah, let's speculate. So it, it would be thinkable to add like a, a new keyword, right? Or, or a new sort of syntax feature for it. Maybe if it, if it really pays off. For example, in Rust, you have like the exclamation mark for the error checking macro, right? And I think that's actually a, a somewhat useful and elegant way of dealing with it. I think they've recently expanded it with even more syntax. And I was sort of turned off by that, right? Because I thought adding a little bit of syntax is okay, but adding too much seems to go overboard. So there is definitely a balance that one needs to strike here. Um, and I'm fairly confident that Russ will come up with a good way that finds consensus, if that is the route that he chooses to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it'd be, it's, it's really interesting because I'd love to not be as verbose, but I, I actually kind of like it too, because I can immediately see where the error states are and how this piece of code intends to handle them. And if, you know, if, if that's kind of abstracted away, you kind of lose that and you're, you're back to kind of exceptions where you're walking through code and, and kind of trying to picture which things throw errors and where they're handled. So it'd have to be something really close because I've come to admire that. And I actually really love seeing the blank identifier for the <laughs> return of the error parameter or the or the response because you immediately see it. it. It's just like staring right at you. You're like, so why aren't you handling that error? You, you love it, meaning <laughs> it, it doesn't obscure that, that there is something re being returned, right? Like, but, and then you know, okay, you're just skipping over handling it. Yeah, it makes it like super clear that this call can return in an unpredictable way, right? Where the, the actual legitimate response variable value, um, like that could be in some unknown state because of an error condition. That's mm -hmm. the thing that I hate the most, right? Is like um, if, if you do a file open, right? And you don't actually notice that that errored out, like, you, you can't really determine what your file pointer is. And then you go off with it and, and in some weird place, it starts failing when you go to use it. Um, so I like the fact that it's, it's really explicit there and you can see it during code review that this can return in an error state and it can make the other values that it returns, you know, unpredictable and they're ignoring it. Like, why, why is that not being handled? Yeah, and I, I definitely love what it does for the end user, right? I, I really feel respected when I get proper error message from a program and not just an exception that is, you know, even worse, pages long, right? As frequently happens with, you know, Python programs where the programmers weren't careful enough or didn't do enough testing. And then something happens like, you know, your 
disk runs out of space or the file that they really expected to be there turns out to not be there. And then you get this huge exception. And it, it, usually the exceptions come with language that isn't quite clear to the end user because it is written from the perspective of the programmer or worse, from the perspective of the programming language designer, right? And then you get like a key error in Python and it could mean anything, right? And, and so that's why I really appreciate what the sometimes onerous error checking and go means for the end user, right? Yeah, I've definitely seen that stuff before too, where like rather than like a, a file doesn't exist for open, you get a nil pointer exception like somewhere down the line because you're trying to, you're trying to deal with the file type. Yeah, and then usually what I do is I, I just give up and I S-trace the program, right? And then at that point, I'm <laughs> like, why are we doing this? There must be a better way. So I think we are probably running a little late on time. Do we want to jump into some interesting projects and news and Free Software Friday? Yes, let's. So I think number one interesting project for the whole year is the Space Gophers screensaver for Mac. <laughs> GitHub.com slash Apiarian, A-P-I-A-R-I-A-N slash space dash gophers. You have to build it yourself because he doesn't have, or whoever built it doesn't have a Xcode a developer Apple account thing. But it is the most adorable gopher screensaver. They're bouncing all across your screen, and it's the gophers from GopherCon this year so they're little space gophers uh you you have to have it there's just if you have a mac you have to have this it's it's not optional i'm gonna wait for somebody who does have xcode to build it so i can install it properly <laughs> but it's so cute i'm gonna have to make like a a linux version and quickly too we mentioned last week um there were security updates to go so if you didn't listen last week Please listen this week and update Go. Yeah. But it should be running 1.9.1 or 1.8.4 now, please. We'll wait. Yeah. <laughs> I'll sit right here and wait. <laughs> Tell us, us when you're ready. <laughs> let us know when you're done. Uh, so what else did we run into this week? Oh, so my Golang UK talk, I announced a tool called uh, Gopher Rocks that automatically tags your uh, GitHub releases for you so that everybody can start tagging their stuff. And mine was a, a pretty facile implementation, not very bright. There is a much better implementation at github.com slash timberio slash grease. And uh, it looks like it's a lot more functional than mine, of course, because I wrote one. Somebody had to have something much better. So grease, grease looks like a really nice uh, GitHub tagging, releasing kind of tool. I definitely recommend going to check that out and you know, I'll probably just stop writing mine now. I actually, like, I almost don't mind when that happens because to me, the fun part is the proof of concept. And then it's like, once the, the problems are figured out, uh, like I want to move on to the next problem. Yeah. So like, I rarely want to get stuff in the state that like I would consider it shippable. That's a good point. Yeah. Sounds like software development. <laughs> well, um, so I ran into this uh, post early in a week, a few days ago, and uh, to, to, to complement Michael's blog post, which is, we never mentioned the name, but it's named Why Go is My Favorite Programming Language, and that's going to be on the show notes. So this post is called 
seven stages of becoming a Go programmer. And it's sort of hilarious. I was laughing. So who it wrote really this? really is good. This guy called uh, Daisuke, Daisuke Maki. It's, it's uh, really clever. So I'll just go through the stages. Can I? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Of They're so, funny. And like, I, I follow right, right with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think. He, I think he hit it on the on the nail. I mean, it was his experience, obviously, but I think it's a it's a we share at least some of these of these stages. Um, you believe you can make go to object or oriented programming. That's stage one. Stage two, you believe go routines will solve all your problems. <laughs> I had that too. I was like I was thinking, wow, you have to not just use go routines, but also use uh, yeah. Channel. Good channels, exactly. And then, well, maybe you should use mutex instead. Make it simpler. Uh, stage three, you believe that instead of objects are in the programming, interfaces will solve all your problems. <laughs> <laughs> and then you hit with reality that abstractions is, you know, complicated. Stage four, you believe channels will solve all your problems. <laughs> Stage five, you now you now believe Go is not as powerful as people claim it to be. <laughs> <laughs> this language sucks. Doesn't do what you want. Uh, stage six, you realize that stages one through five were all just your imagination. <laughs> and <laughs> stage seven, you just accept. Right? You're now at peace. You accept the Go way. You it's are brilliant. one with the gopher. Yeah. Yes. Love, so he... he the author created a, a gist and the, the description for stage seven just makes me happy. It says, you know, you're now at peace. You write everything, including what you normally would have used Ruby, Perl, or Python for in Go. You don't mind the if error not equals nil checks anymore. You only use Go routines and channels if you have to. You are one with the gopher. You feel its glorious chi and cry when you realize his mercy for allowing you to write code in such a majestic language. It's so true. <laughs> So true. Yeah, love it. Uh, and one thing that I say to people, yeah, Go has these these weird things, and the, the error handling is repetitive. But you, if you stick to it, you, you will change your mind. It's just there's something about it, and I think it's the simplicity and how it makes your brain not jump through hoops to understand code. Once you get that, you realize, oh no, this is much better. <laughs> It could be Stockholm syndrome too. We we're not going to decide that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we just came for the cool uh, mascot. Sorry, we came for the gopher screensavers. We stayed for the uh, the chi. Yeah. I, I read that so frequently <laughs> on Twitter. Like people are saying, "Well, I don't know about Go, but it has the best mascot." And I wonder if that's just a meme that you know actual gophers still carry forward, or if that's actually people who are just not into go yet but they think the mascot is really cute right so either way oh, really i think it's it. cool i think everybody lo i think from where i see even veterans still love the gopher it's to me it's really interesting that like how much we own it right like yeah. we are more than happy to wear all kinds of swag like grown adults with 
cartoon <laughs> gophers on our laptops, on yep. on our shirts, on our yeah. backpacks, <laughs> on our sweatshirts, you know, so tattooed. One one additional thing that you guys and girls might not appreciate is that outside of the US, a gopher is not really a thing, right? So whenever I wear gophers on my t-shirts, <laughs> people ask me what sort of animal is that, right? Then I explain to them, well, you know, I, I give them like the German name and they're like, I've never heard of this. This can't be the, the real thing, right? And then they come up with animals that are sort of, you know, the same thing or, or similar. And then I need to explain to them, well, no, you know, it's a, it's a US thing, but believe me, it exists. <laughs> yeah. That had never occurred to me. Yeah. I think I, I know go for more from American television. I mean, I, was, I didn't grow up in the US. Then from real life, I don't. I've never seen a gopher in my life. I don't think. Like Caddyshack. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. But I was going to uh, say that I heard of words of cosplay at the next GopherCon. People wearing gopher costumes. It's just, we're all wearing gopher costumes. Everybody's doing it. So get your costume ready now. Oh my god! Okay. You you should start making stuff up when people ask that. Like, what what's a gopher? And you're like, it's kind of in the same family as a chupacabra. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good point. I'll remember that for next time. <laughs> All right. How about free software Friday? This is Let's one of my favorite segments where we give a shout out to a person or a project that we love. I'd love to kick this one off with a shout out to Ashley McNamara who is not only an amazing technical person and, and programmer, but she's out on the talking speaking circuit right now, helping people feel good about contributing to open source in ways that aren't necessarily code. And I think that's a huge, wonderful message to, to be sending out, how uh, it takes more than just programming to make a good ecosystem for a project. So big shout out to Ashley for, for spreading that word and for being such an amazing steward of our community. Uh, we love you a lot, Ashley. Yeah. Yeah, I would really Good. like to echo that and stress the point that really, if, if you think you want to contribute to open source and all you know is, and you don't know how to program, right? There's still so, so many useful skills that you can bring to the table. And I really wish we would have more non-programmers in open source. I think it would really benefit all, all of us. I think this message also needs to be preached not only to beginners or people who are interested but not doing it, but also to, to veterans because sometimes we talk about making open source more accessible to beginners and people say, well, you know, this code base is so complicated. If you don't have the stamina or desire or time or ability to make this really complicated code change, then why do we need to make it to make a, a accessibility? Like, why do we make need to make it easier to contribute if you don't have those things? You're not going to contribute anyway. But they don't remember that there are very, very things are very simple and straightforward that people can contribute to, like documentation, little examples, right? So the, you have to approach it from both ends. Even triaging, right? Because sometimes people who post issues are like flyby posting. It crashes when I do such and such, and it's not enough for you to, to figure out. And often those are the things that get ignored for the longest time because it's going to take a time investment just to figure out how to recreate whatever issue happened. 
so triaging issues and, and trying to recreate them and offer more context and logs and maybe environment information. Like there's a lot of things that you can do even with, with no to semi-technical ability, not necessarily programming. And yeah. sometimes you can track it down. Maybe you don't know how to fix it, but you know the area of code that's causing it to happen. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that reminds me to mention also that contribute to documentation might require less technical ability. At least at the beginning, like you don't need to know a lot of technicalities about the project, but it's still hard and you need, still need to know the, the essence of what the project is about. It's not trivial, but no. it's more achievable than, than code, right? I think. And also one point is you don't even need to know anything, right? Because as soon as you post something that is wrong, as soon as you make a pull request that has like a wrong documentation change, people will helpfully point out that it is wrong and what needs to be there, right? So the best way to, to get an answer on the internet is to post something wrong and wait for people to correct you. And that applies equally oh, to open source. Absolutely. <laughs> I was working on something important, but you posted something wrong. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I must correct you. I had one of those moments the other night. I think my wife was heading upstairs to bed or something. And I was like, I'll be up in a couple minutes. I'm arguing with somebody yeah. on the internet. <laughs> Somebody's wrong on the internet. I'll be there in a while. <laughs> hey, I totally take advantage of that. I'm always, you know, hey, I think that that's how it should work. I have no idea. Somebody correct me. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, did you have anything this week, Carlicia? No. And how about you, Michael? Did you have a project or maintainer you want to give a shout out to? Yeah, um, actually, just today at work, I was showing some of my colleagues uh, an Emacs package that I've come to really appreciate, which is Maggot. And it is a Git frontend, right? It is, it is integrated into Emacs, but you can also use it if you don't like Emacs at all, because it essentially defines its own keyboard shortcuts and stuff. So there's, you know, don't, don't fear. Uh, just start Emacs and start Maggot and play around a little bit. It has a, a very unique way of, of presenting all of what's going on in your Git uh, working directory, right? So for example, which files are staged? What did you not yet push to upstream? Which stashes do you have? And all of the operations that you want to do are just so easy and accessible. Like if you want to stage just that one line of that one hunk, but not the entire hunk, right? And that is just so convenient and so easy. And I use it all the time. And I've come to realize that even though I'm a big command line user, these days, whenever I have a Git-related thing that I want to change, like I want to commit a new config file or something, uh, I'm at the point where I just start my Emacs to use Maggot, right? It's just the better Git frontend. So definitely, if you haven't checked it out yet, um, check it out. Wow. If only I used Emacs. You don't yeah, need I'm to. Afraid. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So um, mine this week, um, and this is probably a perfect episode for it, is called Alacrity, and it's a, um, it's a terminal emulator that's GPU accelerated using OpenGL. It's written in Rust, um, so I haven't contributed to it or anything. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. But I have to say, it is ridiculously fast, and... Uh, window managers, I don't rotate through i3s there, but I'm still, I've still struggled to find a uh a terminal emulator that i i really like um and it's it's super fast and it renders fonts and glyphs really nicely 
no no tabs so it's cross-platform so it'll work on it will work on all the places but there's no things like you'd see out of like iterm to like tabs and things like that it really kind of depends relies on your um window manager to do that type of stuff so if you are on a mac you have to compile this yourself but if you're running arch like most good people should you can just install this from the aur which is awesome yeah, I was actually kind of surprised that it um that was the only place that it was available as a as a precompiled uh package cuz almost always like Red Hat distributions and Ubuntu get it first and you know you're usually the person who has to write the AUR. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm I'm curious I I don't I don't mean this in a derogatory way at all, but the last couple times that I've tried to do uh compiling rust applications from source uh i've been bitten by the fact that rust is still moving really quickly is is it has it stabilized a bit so that um cloning some software and, and compiling it will work without frustration um this is uh probably the only rust thing that at least i've used knowingly um and i did compile it from source on an ubuntu machine um you install uh, uh it's called rust up first and then that'll allow you to kind of switch between the rust versions and it'll get you the latest um stable release of rust and then this was just a single line uh compile oh okay so it goes pretty quick it's good to know and and do you use this daily alacrity Yes. yes nice good to know all right so with that i think that we are probably over time but i don't think anybody's complaining it's been a ton of fun uh, we're so grateful to have you on the show, Michael. It's been a long time coming. <laughs> we're not worthy. Thank you for having me. It was fun. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so uh, for the listeners, um, we are at gotime.fm. If you want to be on the show, you have suggestions for guests or topics, um, file an issue uh, at github.com slash gotimefm slash ping. Um, we should be back to the normal studio next week. Uh, for anybody who's listening live now. So we'll be back to the, the changelog.com slash live for live listening instead of the live hangouts. Um, and with that, we'll see everybody next week. Bye, everybody. Thank you, Michael. Bye. Thank you, Michael. It's great. Anytime. Bye-bye. All right, that's it for this episode of Go Time. Tune in live on Thursdays at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelog.com slash live. Join the community in Slack with us. In real time during the shows, head to changelog.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at GoTimeFM. Special thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. Also, Linode, we host everything we do on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash changelog. GoTime is edited by Jonathan Youngblood, and the theme music for GoTime is produced by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening.